All right, good morning. This morning we are in Luke chapter 4. This is part 2 of this chapter as we will perhaps wrap it up next Sunday. You know, on Tuesday, we will be celebrating, what is it, 274? Is that what it is? Two, oh, 247. 247. Yeah, we're three, uh, three years away, right, from the big 250 as, uh, as a nation. And 247 years, uh, you know, as we see Paris is in flames, being destroyed, but it's, it's par for the course, right? Uh, we've seen that within our own nation, haven't we? I mean, Paris is, isn't there a movie, Paris has fallen or something like that? What is it? Huh? Oh, London. <laughs> um, close, right? <laughs> Closer. London has fallen. Paris is, is, uh, is just being destroyed completely. Um, but it's the day in which we're living in. All the more reason to draw close, closer to the Lord, uh, paying attention to what's happening around us, but more importantly, paying attention to the Lord and fixing our eyes upon Jesus, who is our only hope. There, there is no hope in any man here on earth. Zero. There, there is absolutely no hope. There's no hope in, in any system of government. There is no uh, financial system that can be put together. Um, nothing of the sort. In fact, what, what, what will happen, and we know that according to the word, is that the world will be fooled into thinking that one man can fix it all. So that's what the world is right for. As far as you and I are concerned, we need to stand on the truth because where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, there is liberty. Uh, we're going to take a look this morning at a portion of Scripture that Jesus stood up and read and said, today the fulfillment of the Scripture is known, it, it's, and that is in Jesus Christ. And we'll see how it is that he has come to set the captives free. And so we, as having been freed, as my son uh, gave the devotion this morning, were reminded that in Jesus we are free indeed. That the liberty that we should be pursuing and abiding in is the freedom and the liberty that we have come to know, apart from sin, being justified by our faith in Jesus Christ, and having him atone for our sin on the cross and therefore satisfying the wrath of God against us. That is, where, that is what should compel us to live a life that is uprightly before the Lord and to spread the gospel to more people. I believe at this moment, at this moment, we still live in the greatest, uh, live in the greatest country in the world. And so we ought to protect it as much as we can. And that is within our own homes, within our own church, within our own neighborhood, within our own society. 
right? This is what we've been entrusted with, and so therefore we ought to stand for righteousness. Not turn the other way, not, not ignore it, but apply the word of God in such a way that it blesses him, that people may see how it is that we live our lives and then speak to them about who it is that Jesus is and lead them to him. So enjoy your 4th of July on Tuesday. And at the same time, thank the Lord for the opportunity and the privilege of living at such a time to where there's still freedom to spread the gospel in this country and take full advantage of it. So ask the Lord at the same time to give you every opportunity to tell others about the freedom that they too can know in Jesus Christ. Amen? All right, so... This morning, we uh, again continue our study through the Gospel of Luke. We're in Luke chapter 4. Last week, we looked at Jesus having been tempted by Satan. And the title of this morning's message is Rejected. So we're going to begin by reading Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 21. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Oh, Heavenly Father, as we read the portion of our history, of which the Messiah stood up amongst your people and declared who he was and what he was sent to do. Or do we know that in the moment, they all marveled. They all were in awe of his teaching. And they glorified him. They lifted him up. But we know there will come a time, and even in this moment, to where they will begin to question They will begin to doubt and even quickly get to the place where they are so angry with him that they want to kill him. Oh Lord, may that reveal to us our own hearts how fickle our hearts can be. Lord, that when the teaching gets tough, 
when our sins are confronted. Lord, that we may not be like those who do not heed your word. Although you sent them prophet after prophet after prophet. Lord, you sent your people, your servants to speak to them and to warn them. May we not be like that. May we not be led by our emotions and our feelings, Lord. If they are contrary to your word, Lord, may we be disciplined in those thoughts and hold them captive and submit them to you. I pray, Lord, that you would also help us to see the love that you have for us. Lord, truly you are long-suffering. You are merciful. Father, you loved us so much that you sent your only begotten Son and you demonstrated your love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Oh Lord, may we not miss the lessons that we have before us this morning. And as Ray prayed, if there's any distraction, if there's anything, Lord, that is holding us back from hearing from you this morning, may we repent of those things, but instead, truly fix our eyes upon you. May we have ears to hear and hearts to obey what you have for us this morning. And so, Lord, we commit this time into your hands, Lord. We ask your blessing and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, last week we learned how it was that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted, specifically by the devil. It was not for a day, it wasn't for a few days, it was for 40 days. But we know of three temptations because they're listed for us in the Gospel of Luke. We also learned how the Holy Spirit will always lead us into all truth, according to John 16, 13. And how he will provide for you a way of escape when temptation does come our way. So he, the Holy Spirit leads us into all truth, always. And he always gives us a way of escape, according to 1 Corinthians 10, 13. When we are tempted... If we pay attention, we begin to understand that the devil always acts according to his own character. He is a liar who seeks to steal and kill and destroy you as an individual. He will always manipulate and make something appear as if it is good, only it's not. And then when you do partake of that temptation, we know that in Revelation, he's the accuser of the brethren, and he will point it out to you. Our flesh, you know, agrees with him when he whispers in our ear, why deny yourself? Why deprive yourself? You deserve it. Don't withhold from yourself the pleasure and happiness 
that they all want to keep from you. Those who stand in the way of truth, that stand on the word of God, that encourage you to do that which honors and blesses the Lord. Why would you listen to them? They want to keep you from what really makes you happy. Remember I told you last week, what does that sound like to you? Do what makes you happy. Do whatever it is that fulfills you, makes you content, satisfies you and your pleasure. It's, it's not the Lord, is it? It's the world. The world says that. I just consume, just bring in. But the Lord says, deny yourself. Pick up your cross and follow me. Delight yourself in the Lord. You know, these things that I'm reminding you of that we went over last week, you know, this is nothing new. This is what Satan did with Eve in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. It's the same thing. Same tactic. But we also learn that it is through those trials of various kinds that our faith is tested to produce. And this is what God desires to do in our lives as his people. That as we go through those various trials, that our faith is tested to produce a steadfastness in you and I. Which means that it builds up the quality of being resolutely firm and unwavering in our faith. Walking in the truth. That we bear down. That we persevere. James 1, 2 through 4 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It's in those times that to the world it would be somewhat odd, but at the same time, as you do build that perseverance and that steadfastness, that strength in your faith in the Lord, what happens when you face various trials is that you truly bear down under its weight, knowing that you're not alone. Because God bears your burden for you. And what happens is you bear down and you keep your eyes fixed on the author and perfecter of your faith. And you strive all the more to advance the gospel in your own life. Oftentimes the opposite happens. We begin to weaken we begin to tremble because we're doing it in our own strength. And then we wonder why God isn't with us. No, it's in those times that it's in our weakness that he shows himself strong on our behalf. It's in those times that we persevere. Yes, we still go through those trials, but he promised to get us through them. Don't stop. Keep going. Facing the giants, right? Alex and Ethan, where are you? Sick? Oh. Alex and Ethan just graduated, and um, there are seniors who graduated, and 
I shared the, um, the scene in Facing the Giants where the coach is um, telling Brock to not quit and keep going. Don't stop. Keep going. He had blindfolded him, and it was football practice, and, and uh, he had um, another teammate that uh, he had on his back, and uh, he thought perhaps he could go to the 30 in his own strength. And he, the coach asked him, you know, just to commit and just not quit. And, um, and he kept going, and he kept going, and he kept going. He said, it hurts. I can't. It's too hard. It's too difficult. And all the way, all the way, all the way, he just kept going. Even though he was complaining, he just kept going. I'm sure it was painful for him. And when he finally just collapsed, he didn't know. But as his brother, as his, as his coach was encouraging him, as he took off the blindfold, he realized that he was in the end zone. He had gone all 100 yards, all the way into the end zone. You know, if I may encourage you, whatever it is that you're going through, I know some of you are the things that you're going through and others I, I don't know. But God does. May I just encourage you to persevere. Don't quit. Don't draw back. Keep pressing in. Keep your eyes fixed, not on anyone else, not on your situation. Please don't do that. Keep your eyes fixed on the author and perfecter of your faith. Persevere, because one day we will cross that finish line. And I want to make sure that we're all at that point exhausted but victorious in Christ. That we too may, we, may look up and know that we have done everything we, that we possibly can to bring honor to the Lord. And we have persevered. We have been steadfast. Because this morning it doesn't stop for our Lord, Jesus Christ. This morning we'll see how the Holy Spirit who led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted will also lead Jesus back to Galilee to teach in the synagogues, yes, including Nazareth, Jesus' hometown where he grew up. And it is for various reasons, but we know also that it serves as an example of how it is that even Jesus' resolve was tested to continue in the Father's will, even though he will have experienced being rejected and despised for the things he had to say to them. This is only the beginning of such rejection and hostility toward him. We know that. This is only the beginning. In Hebrews chapter 12, in verses 3 and 4, it says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility, against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So this morning, we're considering Jesus who did endure from sinners' hostility toward himself and resisted sin to the point of shedding his own blood. Uh, sin, a departure from God's will. Sometimes we call it all kinds of different things. We, instead of calling it sin, it's a, whatever, anger, laziness, 
procrastination. And each one of those can be preceded by sin, which is sin, which that's what it is. Anything that departs from the Father's will, from the very word of God, the bottom line, it's sin. And for Jesus, he lived a perfect life, and yet he was tempted. We know that. And yet he resisted to the point of shedding his own blood. And I pray that we are encouraged by his example And we are encouraged by his love for us so that we will be further established in our own faith and not grow weary or faint-hearted when, not if, but when, we are called to endure hardships in our lives and are tested whether we will be found faithful to God or unfaithful to him. I pray that we would persevere and be found faithful to him. Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit to Galilee and specifically to his hometown of Nazareth, at at some point, which we saw and we read here. So let's see what happened in that time. As we know, he's going into a time of being rejected. So first of all, we see how it is that he returned in the power of the Spirit. Again, verse 14 says, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And so as Jesus now comes back to Galilee from the wilderness, he returns, as we read here, in the power of the Spirit. Now, remember how the Spirit descended from heaven and rested upon Jesus when he was, after he was baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan. In Luke chapter 24, verse 49, it says, And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. It happened with Jesus at the Jordan after he was baptized by John to identify with you and I. And then before he ascended into heaven, this is what he told his disciples in Luke 24, 49. Now the promise came to be fulfilled In Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, when it says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The same power Jesus experienced from the Father is the same power that Jesus promised his followers would receive in order to go into all the world and testify of who he is. To be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and unto the ends of the earth. It's the same power. The same power that resurrected Jesus Christ from the grave is the same power that empowers you and indwells you With you and I, according to James 1, 2 through 4, when our faith is tested through various trials and we endure and we persevere through them, what happens is that we are better for having done so. You know, the opposite of that is not learning through those lessons. 
If you go back to the book of Judges, you will see a cycle that the Israelites were in. The Lord would send them judges. They would deliver them from, from whatever oppression, from, from whatever it was that the Lord had delivered them into or handed them over to. It was his discipline. They would finally confess, repent, cry out to the Lord. He would hear them. He would deliver them from that through this judge. They would be blessed that God would return just providing for them everything only to fall again into the same sin. And the whole cycle started again. Why? Because God disciplines those whom he loves. As we endure these trials, these, the testing of our faith, like I said, make sure that you keep your eyes fixed on the Lord because what, what may happen, and this is according to God's word, that same trial may repeat itself in our lives over and over and we wonder, why is it that our lives are falling apart? I can't just seem to get a handle on anything. When you realize that God is everything and wisdom belongs to him and that he is able and faithful, when you get to that point and you realize that, that the testing of your faith is really there to produce a steadfastness, a resolve in your own life, a conviction that is immovable, that no matter what comes my way, what circumstances I find myself in, I will, I will trust in the Lord. I will, I will rejoice in Him and continue to serve Him. It produces within us a steadfastness knowing that we lack nothing in Christ. Do you believe that? Because we read it. We need to believe that. We need to know it. We need to apply it. We know that he has supplied all we need and are confident and content with that and in that. The things that Satan attempts to use to destroy us, God means for good. And we are better for having heeded God's word and resisted temptation, being obedient to God and not our flesh and not Satan's lies. You know, when we say, oh, Satan is out to get us, destroy us, he seems to be relentless in coming at us. Hallelujah, praise God. <laughs> we just learned, again, we were reminded how it is that we are victorious in Christ. All of those things serve a purpose. And so therefore, if God allowed that to take place in our lives, then we should be looking for the purpose of it. Why is it that you allowed that to happen to me? Not woe is me, but why did it happen? Okay, Lord. All right, let's get to work. Reveal it to me. That as you've tested my faith, I will not be found wanting. But at this moment, I want to be found faithful to you. So what is it? I'm going to stand up with you because you are the lifter of my head. You are my refuge. I'm going to keep going. Joseph knew this very well. He addressed his brothers after his father had died. In Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, it says, As for you, 
you meant evil against me. So he really, he didn't disregard it. <laughs> and he knew exactly. And this was, he was speaking to his brothers who sold him into slavery. You'd be a little upset, wouldn't you? They went back and told dad that, yeah, he must have been eaten by some beast. Oh, wow. Like, I would forgive them in a minute, right? In a second. That would be very hard, right? And yet, we don't see Joseph holding a grudge. He said, as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You see, he could have been in that, he could have remained in that place to where it's like, I just, I, I don't know why God is allowing this. Why would a good God allow this to happen to me? I mean, God, you gave me this, these visions, you know, and, and, and how is it that you've allowed now for my brothers, who are obviously evil and wicked, to do this to me? Now, Joseph could have had a, this victim mentality instead of a, a victor's mentality. Truly looking to the Lord and saying, okay, you've entrusted this to me. Did you know that your trials are actually entrusted to you? You ought to be a good steward of that. I know that we recite Romans 8.28 all the time, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. I think there's a period after that. It's just period. And yet again, we find if you find yourself just complaining and like again having that conversation in your own mind and maybe with other people, and then you you have them join in your woes, right? Oh, that's worse. When you when you actually have others participate in your complaints? That's horrible. Because that can turn into a root of bitterness. And then it becomes cancerous. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Be wise as to who it is that you share your complaints with. That that brother or sister would be faithful and true enough to the Lord that they would be willing to confront you in that time and say, turn your eyes to the Lord, for he is faithful and he is able. God is getting you through this. And there's a purpose for it, even though you don't like to hear it. There's a purpose. Well, at this point, as we see in what we just read, Jesus openly taught in synagogue, and we see him doing so throughout the Galilean region, as we saw. Word got out that Jesus was teaching. He was not opposed by anyone, as we read here, and so he was glorified. He was uplifted. He was held in high regard until he comes to his hometown of Nazareth. Verse 16. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. And we're going to stop there for a moment. As was his custom. Jesus now comes back. He's been teaching. He's been going to synagogue every week. 
in various areas throughout the region of Galilee, which is around the Sea of Galilee. It is known that he, he moved, his, he made his home Capernaum. But now he traveled to Nazareth, where he grew up. Obviously, the, your hometown where you grew up, the people would know you, having seen him, you know, on a daily basis. In fact, we know that he was a carpenter, and so I have no doubt that perhaps he, he made some furniture for, for others. He, he helped people in that trade. And so people knew him in Nazareth. They were very well acquainted with him. But what I want to draw your attention to is the statement that was made here regarding Jesus' custom. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. What, is it, what does it say? Should it be different today than it was back then? No, it, it means that Jesus did not forsake the assembling of the people of God. He gathered every week with everyone else in the synagogue. Our Lord, our Savior, the Word. He gathered with everyone else. He came to worship and for the public reading and the study of God's Word. When people say they don't need to go to church to be a Christian, they're right, actually. But if they are a Christian which is a follower of Jesus Christ, then they should love to be with God's people and they should desire to glorify God by being obedient to God's word. So therefore, the genuine Christian ought to be convicted and compelled to not forsake the assembling of the people of God, but rather gather together. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So not less, but more. And it doesn't matter what season of life you're in. Whether you're still working, you're empty nesters, or you're retired. It does not matter. This Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 is not conditional upon your status in life. Please understand what the word of God is saying here. This is the example that Jesus gave us. Ought we not to follow it? 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father... Let's stop there, because I don't like the rest of that verse. So we're just going to ignore it. Let's move on. Is that not sometimes what we do? We just stop. Well, we'll just stop short. Everyone who believes that Jesus is a Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Oh. That just messed up people's thoughts. That just like, 
<sighs> no excuses. You know, we do what, what is unnatural as far as the spirit is concerned. You know, to love someone who is, man, you think, man, they're unlovable. <laughs> There's, who, who could love that person? It's like they are difficult. But God calls us to even be willing to lay down our lives for them. It takes everything within us at times to deny ourselves, to die to self, and demonstrate a love for someone else that is beyond our ability and beyond our strength, so that we may demonstrate that we love God. We truly do. And we're willing to do anything. So, be curious about someone else. Ask questions. Esteem them more than yourself. Don't be quick to judge. But get to know them and, and ask the Lord how it is that he can use you to minister to them. That ought to be happening within the body. Because he goes on to say, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. We're, we're just, we're willing to do them. We're willing to walk them out. Even if it's difficult, and especially if it's difficult. Knowing that we are to deny ourselves in that moment. Get over ourselves, right? So love God, love the church, keep his commandments, go to church, obey his word, serve his people. John 13, 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So it's conditional, right? If you have love for one another, then you will demonstrate that you are truly my disciples. And so Jesus' love for the Father was demonstrated here and would be further demonstrated to him and us as he was willing to be obedient all the way to the cross where he shed his blood to pay for your sins, our sins. If he was willing to do that, we should be willing to endure the hard things to bless him and demonstrate our love for him, including the simple act of regularly attending church fellowship and serving him. Thirdly, Jesus declares he is the anointed one. Verse 18, as we continue, says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And he was not reading from uh, the book of Isaiah or the scroll of Isaiah is what we see here in 61 verses 1 and 2. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So Jesus read Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, not in its entirety, because as we see in, in our Bible, as we see the, uh, the separation of verses, and we see that he only read a portion of verse 2. So Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1, and this first portion of verse 2. This was the scroll that was handed to him. He could have read out of anything. But the scroll of Isaiah was handed to him by the attendant. This prophecy was referring to the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. 
The people were looking for a political deliverance. What he read is, is not in reference to a political deliverance of God's people, but rather a spiritual deliverance that Jesus came to fulfill for the people regarding eternal condemnation. Jesus was sent to proclaim good news to the poor and give liberty and, and proclaim liberty to the captives, to bring the recovering of sight to the blind and to set free all who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of jubilee. What Jesus did was correct their thoughts, actually, in regard to Scripture. This was not meant to foretell of the Messiah coming to deliver them from physical oppression, but rather from spiritual condemnation. Jesus wasn't just some other judge or some other king that they had known in the past, but rather came to judge sin and reign in their hearts as king, that they may be made rich in Christ, free by the Spirit, able to see that he is their Savior, and that they are no longer oppressed and taken captive by their sin. You see, the year of the Lord's favor is in reference to the year of Jubilee, which is when slaves were set free, debts were canceled, and property was returned to the original owners. Jesus did not go on to read what is to come because it wasn't his time for the second portion of Isaiah chapter 61, verse 2. Because that is in reference to his second coming. When the day of vengeance will come, but rather he stopped there and he sat down, giving the scroll back to the attendant. Why? Because verses 1 and 2a was the day in which they were living in. He was the one that Isaiah was referring to. And so again, Jesus rolled a scroll back up. He gave it to the attendant and then sat down. But then he continued to speak, saying to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And we know that as he continued to speak, some of them, they were marveling at him, at what he was saying. And at the same time, they were puzzled because of his statement that he proclaimed. And so we need to notice how it is that these people change their mind and are so fickle at heart. One moment, they were praising him and exalting his name and honoring him as a good teacher. And he spoke this. You could say this was the beginning of the end for them. As now, they were wondering how such a marvelous man, he was such a good man, he was, it was such a blessing to, to hear him up to this point. How could he say such a thing? And then they began to question, oh, they were, what they pointed out was, is it, this is a common man. <laughs> is this not Joseph's son? This is... What Satan does, by the way, is he begins to undermine the very power and authority of God's word. Isn't this just? And that's what they were doing. Is not this Joseph's son? And Jesus knew their hearts and responded with words that would bring their perplexed thoughts to a crescendo of anger toward him. That would bring them to the point 
of even desiring to kill him. Verses 23 through 30 shows us that. And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. For God so loved the world. The people only saw Jesus as the son of Mary and Joseph. They only knew him as the one who was from Nazareth. And then they had heard that he had performed some miracles in Capernaum. So they call on him. They wanted him to perform the same miracles there in Nazareth that he had performed in Capernaum. We heard of these things. You say this, we're perplexed. We're, we're not sure why it is that you would say what you said. But basically they were saying, if you are though, okay, well, prove it to us. Show us some of your, your miracles. What did he do? Did he capitulate? He, he agreed? Okay, what do, you, what do you want me to do? You want me to turn this rock into a piece of bread? He didn't. He actually refused. Just straight, no. Their request was put in the form of what Jesus referred to as a proverb. It was very common in that day. They knew what it meant. Physician, heal yourself. In other words, perform a miracle. And Jesus explained to them how someone so familiar and normal would be so difficult to believe that they have been called by God to deliver his word, let alone be the Messiah. And Jesus had nothing to prove to them. He, he was not moved by their request to prove himself. He was doing the will of the Father. He knew that. He wasn't doing the will of the people. He was doing the will of the Father. And he knew that very well. Perfectly. Listen, this should be a lesson to all who demand sim something similar from even a pastor. And a lesson to a pastor who is being demanded by the people to prove himself genuine by doing what they demand of him. It's just got to come down to knowing God's word and being aware of one's own heart. Is what we have, let me ask you something. Is what we have here in alignment with God's word? 
If not, then I'm going to ask you to leave. You don't have to do it now. But after service, <laughs> if you think you're right, really, and you think that perhaps this, this church is not in alignment with God's word, then please leave. But make sure that you align God's word with whatever complaint you have. And if by chance you can, and you have the courage to do so, bring it to my attention. Because Matthew 18 calls us to do that according to God's word. Anything beyond what we have in Scripture, what we're called to do as a church, is like an extra. It's a blessing. Keep that in mind. What is church for? What are we here for? What is our purpose? Because a pastor should be the under-shepherd of the great shepherd. Not submitted to the people's will, but to the Father's will. As he has given us the one who is the head of the church, Jesus Christ. If the pastor is in alignment with him, then praise God. Praise God. Because there are many pastors who are not in alignment with him and are just trying to fill seats by listening to the people and making sure that what they're doing in church is consumer-oriented and is like servicing the people, just tickling their ears and helping them hear whatever it is that you want to hear. Maybe a motivational speech to help you feel better as you go out to tackle the world, succeed in life, make as much money as you can and drive expensive cars and have big homes. That's what we find in many places, not here. God blesses you with that, then he has entrusted that to you. And it's a great responsibility, but he doesn't promise that. Jesus did not bend to the will of the people. Jesus was led by the Spirit to fulfill the will of the Father. The will of the Father was to send the Son to die for the sin of the world, not just the Jews. That's what they were thinking. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. What got them so angry that they wanted to kill him was that he told them by these two references is that God's salvation is for all mankind, including the Gentiles, not just for you, the Jews. Oh. What examples did he give? Well, he gave two great prophets. Elijah passed up all the Jewish widows and helped a Gentile widow. First Kings chapter 17, verses 8 through 16. And Elisha healed a Gentile leper from Syria, Naaman. And that is in reference to 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. That was, those were his examples. And because of what he said, they wanted to kill him. And it was not Jesus' time to die, and definitely not in this manner. And so, because they didn't have the authority to take his life, Jesus simply walked away. They could do nothing about it. Again, 
if we're doubting God's ability to deliver us, look to Jesus. In this moment, it wasn't his time. Therefore, he simply walked through them. Oh, what God can deliver us from if we just but trust in him. So I want to conclude with this. Beware of demanding from God to prove himself by requesting him to perform something for you because he isn't moved by this. Your unbelief does not determine whether Jesus is a son of God or not. Jesus is a son of God, period. And if you reject Jesus, then you will one day face the second portion of Isaiah chapter 61, verse 2. And that is the day of vengeance of our God. That is for certain. It is not something that is made up. It is something that we, should, we ought to consider, we ought to acknowledge. Because if we're not found fully surrendering our lives to Jesus Christ and being justified in him, having surrendered our lives to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, then what remains for us is eternal condemnation. And we will see the vengeance of God. Naaman the leper surrendered his pride, obeyed the word of the prophet, and was healed. He went and did as he was told, even though initially he was reluctant to do it. Some of you may be initially reluctant, and yet you know full well. You've heard it time and time again. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And you know that if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. For all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You know that you've heard it over and over again. And yet I would call you this morning, do not harden your heart toward the Lord. There's only one way to the Father and it's through Jesus Christ. And so I would ask you at this moment, that you would consider God's kindness, his love toward you. That you would surrender all of that, the, the sin that actually prevents you from going to the Lord. That you would be willing to forsake it all. To confess it all and repent of it. And cry out to Jesus Christ, please be my Lord and Savior. That you would do that. And you would do it sincerely. Not because of anything else other than you would be forgiven of your sins. You'd be forgiven of your sins. And you would have the hope of heaven. I pray that you wouldn't reject Jesus, but instead will surrender your pride to God's salvation, his grace. Only known in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died for your sins. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the love that you have for us and for our Lord Jesus Christ, for, for being willing to be rejected. Lord, being persecuted 
being doubted and ultimately being whipped and being nailed to a cross for us. I thank you, Father, for sending the Son. And I thank our Lord for fulfilling your, your will, being willing to lay down his life for our sake, knowing that by his death, by his shed blood, it has been paid in full. And I ask, Lord, that you would move in our hearts, that we would be a people who are drawn to you, who truly find contentment and satisfaction and hope and purpose in salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And we rejoice daily, Lord. We desire to draw closer to you. We, we find great pleasure in walking with you. So I ask, Father, that for anyone who does not know salvation in Jesus Christ, that today be the day of salvation, that today there would be a surrender completely unto him, Oh, that they would know the relief that comes from the burden of sin or that keeps them from seeing your glory. That they would know that with this exchange of their sin that you will give them eternal life and you would lead them. You will seal them for the day of redemption and you will never leave them nor forsake them, but you will continue to pour into them them knowing that they truly belong to you. So, Father, I just thank you again for who you are and the love that you have for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.